This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 7 my curiosity had been not a little raised with regard to the description of country we should meet on the other side of the mountains, and I had supposed, with Toby, that immediately on gaining the heights we should be enabled to view the large bays of Hapar and Taipee reposing at our feet on one side, in the same way that Nukahiva lay spread out below on the other. But here we were disappointed. Instead of finding the mountain we had ascended sweeping down in the opposite direction into broad and capacious valleys, the land appeared to retain its general elevation, only broken into a series of ridges and intervales, which as far as the eye could reach stretched away from us, with their precipitous sides covered with the brightest verdure, and waving here and there with the foliage of clumps of woodland, among which, however, we perceived none of those trees upon whose fruit we had relied with such certainty. This was a most unlooked-for discovery, and one that promised to defeat our plans altogether, for we could not think of descending the mountain on the Nukahiva side in quest of food. Should we for this purpose be induced to retrace our steps, we should run no small chance of encountering the natives, who in that case, if they did nothing worse to us, would be certain to convey us back to the ship for the sake of the reward in calico and trinkets, which we had no doubt our skipper would hold out to them as an inducement to our capture. What was to be done? The dolly would not sail perhaps for ten days, and how were we to sustain life during this period? I bitterly repented our improvidence in not providing ourselves, as we easily might have done, with a supply of biscuit. With a rueful visage, I now bethought me of the scanty handful of bread I had stuffed into the bosom of my frock, and felt somewhat desirous to ascertain what part of it had weathered the rather rough usage it had experienced in ascending the mountain. I accordingly proposed to Toby that we should enter into a joint examination of the various articles we had brought from the ship. With this intent, we seated ourselves upon the grass, and a little curious to see with what kind of judgment my companion had filled his frock, which I remarked seemed about as well lined as my own, I requested him to commence operations by spreading out its contents. Thrusting his hand, then, into the bosom of this capacious receptacle, he first brought to light about a pound of tobacco, whose component parts still adhered together, the whole outside being covered with soft particles of sea-bread. Wet and dripping, it had the appearance of having been just recovered from the bottom of the sea, but I paid slight attention to a substance of so little value to us in our present situation, as soon as I perceived the indications it gave of Toby's foresight in laying in a supply of food for the expedition. I eagerly inquired what quantity he had brought with him, when, rummaging once more beneath his garment, he produced a small handful of something so soft, pulpy, and discolored, that for a few moments he was as much puzzled as myself to tell by what possible instrumentality such a villainous compound had become engendered in his bosom. I can only describe it as a hash of soaked bread and bits of tobacco, brought to a doughy consistency by the United Agency of Perspiration and Rain. 
but repulsive as it might otherwise have been, I now regarded it as an invaluable treasure, and proceeded with great care to transfer this paste-like mass to a large leaf which I had plucked from a bush beside me. Toby informed me that in the morning he had placed two whole biscuits in his bosom, with a view of munching them, should he feel so inclined, during our flight. These were now reduced to the equivocal substance which I had just placed on the leaf. Another dive into the frock brought to view some four or five yards of calico print, whose tasteful pattern was rather disfigured by the yellow stains of the tobacco with which it had been brought in contact. In drawing this calico slowly from his bosom, inch by inch, Toby reminded me of a juggler performing the feat of the endless ribbon. The next cast was a small one, being a sailor's little ditty-bag, containing needles, thread, and other sewing utensils. Then came a razor-case, followed by two or three separate plugs of negro-head, which were fished up from the bottom of the now-empty receptacle. These various matters being inspected, I produced the few things that I had myself brought. As might have been anticipated from the state of my companion's edible supplies, I found my own in a deplorable condition, and diminished to a quantity that would not have formed half a dozen mouthfuls for a hungry man who was partial enough to tobacco not to mind swallowing it. A few morsels of bread, with a fathom or two of white cotton cloth, and several pounds of choice pigtail, composed the extent of my possessions. Our joint stock of miscellaneous articles was now made up into a compact bundle, which it was agreed we should carry alternately. But the sorry remains of the biscuit were not to be disposed of so summarily. The precarious circumstances in which we were placed made us regard them as something on which very probably depended the fate of our adventure. After a brief discussion, in which we both of us expressed our resolution of not descending into the bay until the ship's departure, I suggested to my companion that little of it as there was, we should divide the bread into six equal portions, each of which should be a day's allowance for both of us. This proposition he assented to, so I took the silk kerchief from my neck, and cutting it with my knife into half a dozen equal pieces, proceeded to make an exact division. At first, Toby, with a degree of fastidiousness that seemed to me ill-timed, was for picking out the minute particles of tobacco with which the spongy mass was mixed. But against this proceeding I protested, as by such an operation we must have greatly diminished its quantity. When the division was accomplished, we found that a day's allowance for the two was not a great deal more than what a tablespoon might hold. Each separate portion we immediately rolled up and the bit of silk prepared for it and joining them all together into a small package, I committed them, with solemn injunctions of fidelity, to the custody of Toby. For the remainder of that day, we resolved to fast, as we had been fortified by a breakfast in the morning, and now, starting again to our feet, we looked about us for a shelter during the night, which, from the appearance of the heavens, promised to be a dark and tempestuous one. There was no place near us which would in any way answer our purpose, so turning our backs upon Nukahiva, we commenced exploring the unknown regions which lay upon the other side of the mountain. In this direction, as far as our vision extended, not a sign of life 
nor anything that denoted even the transient residence of man could be seen. The whole landscape seemed one unbroken solitude, the interior of the island having apparently been untenanted since the morning of the creation, and as we advanced through this wilderness, our voices sounded strangely in our ears, as though human accents had never before disturbed the fearful silence of the place, interrupted only by the low murmurings of distant waterfalls. Our disappointment, however, in not finding the various fruits with which we had intended to regale ourselves during our stay in these wilds, was a good deal lessened by the consideration that from this very circumstance we should be much less exposed to a casual meeting with the savage tribes about us, who we knew always dwelt beneath the shadows of those trees which supplied them with food. We wandered along, casting eager glances into every bush we passed, until just as we had succeeded in mounting one of the many ridges that intersected the ground, I saw in the grass before me something like an indistinctly traced footpath, which appeared to lead along the top of the ridge, and to descend with it into a deep ravine about half a mile in advance of us. Robinson Crusoe could not have been more startled at the footprint in the sand than we were at this unwelcome discovery. My first impulse was to make as rapid a retreat as possible, and bend our steps in some other direction, but our curiosity to see whither this path might lead prompted us to pursue it. So on we went, the track becoming more and more visible the farther we proceeded, until it conducted us to the verge of the ravine, where it abruptly terminated. And so, said Toby, peering down into the chasm, everyone that travels this path takes a jump here, eh? Not so, said I, for I think they might manage to descend without it. What say you? Shall we attempt the feat? And what, in the name of caves and coal holes, do you expect to find at the bottom of that gulf but a broken neck? Why, it looks blacker than our ship's hold, and the roar of those waterfalls down there would batter one's brains to pieces. Oh, no, Toby, I exclaimed, laughing. But there's something to be seen here that's plain, or there would have been no path, and I am resolved to find out what it is. I will tell you what, my pleasant fellow, rejoined Toby quickly. If you are going to pry into everything you meet with here that excites your curiosity, you will marvelously soon get knocked on the head. To a dead certainty you will come bang upon a party of these savages in the midst of your discovery-makings, and I doubt whether such an event would particularly delight you. Just take my advice for once, and let us bout-ship and steer in some other direction. Besides, it's getting late, and we ought to be mooring ourselves for the night." That is just the thing I have been driving at, replied I, and I am thinking that this ravine will exactly answer our purpose, for it is roomy, secluded, well watered, and may shelter us from the weather. I and from sleep, too, and by the same token will give us sore throats and rheumatisms into the bargain, cried Toby, with evident dislike at the idea. Oh, very well then, my lad, said I, since you will not accompany me, here I go alone. You will see me in the morning. And advancing to the edge of the cliff upon which we had been standing, I proceeded to lower myself down by the tangled roots which clustered about all the crevices of the rock. As I had anticipated, Toby, in spite of his previous remonstrances, followed my example, and dropping himself with the activity of a squirrel from point to point, he quickly outstripped me, 
and effected a landing at the bottom before I had accomplished two-thirds of the descent. The sight that now greeted us was one that will ever be vividly impressed upon my mind. Five foaming streams, rushing through as many gorges, and swelled and turbid by the recent rains, united together in one mad plunge of nearly eighty feet, and fell with wild uproar into a deep black pool scooped out of the gloomy-looking rocks that lay piled around, and thence in one collected body dashed down a narrow sloping channel which seemed to penetrate into the very bowels of the earth. Overhead, vast roots of trees hung down from the sides of the ravine, dripping with moisture, and trembling with the concussions produced by the fall. It was now sunset, and the feeble, uncertain light that found its way into these caverns and woody depths heightened their strange appearance, and reminded us that in a short time we should find ourselves in utter darkness. As soon as I had satisfied my curiosity by gazing at this scene, I felt wondering how it was that what we had taken for a path should have conducted us to so singular a place, and began to suspect that after all I might have been deceived in supposing it to have been a track formed by the islanders. This was rather an agreeable reflection than otherwise, for it diminished our dread of accidentally meeting with any of them, and I came to the conclusion that perhaps we could not have selected a more secure hiding place than this very spot we had so accidentally hit upon. Toby agreed with me in this view of the matter and we immediately began gathering together the limbs of trees which lay scattered about, with the view of constructing a temporary hut for the night. This we were obliged to build close to the foot of the cataract, for the current of water extended very nearly to the sides of the gorge. The few moments of light that remained we employed in covering our hut with a species of broad-bladed grass that grew in every fissure of the ravine. Our hut, if it deserved to be called one, consisted of six or eight of the straightest branches we could find, laid obliquely against the steep wall of rock, with their lower ends within a foot of the stream. Into the space thus covered over we managed to crawl, and dispose our wearied bodies as best we could. Shall I ever forget that horrid night? As for poor Toby, I could scarcely get a word out of him. It would have been some consolation to have heard his voice, but he lay shivering the livelong night like a man afflicted with the palsy, with his knees drawn up to his head, while his back was supported against the dripping side of the rock. During this wretched night there seemed nothing wanting to complete the perfect misery of our condition. The rain descended in such torrents that our poor shelter proved a mere mockery. In vain did I try to elude the incessant streams that poured upon me, by protecting one part I only exposed another, and the water was continually finding some new opening through which to drench us. I have had many a ducking in the course of my life, and in general cared little about it, but the accumulated horrors of that night, the death-like coldness of the place, the appalling darkness, and the dismal sense of our forlorn condition, almost unmanned me. It will not be doubted that the next morning we were early risers, and as soon as I could catch the faintest glimpse of anything like daylight, I shook my companion by the arm, and told him it was sunrise. 
poor Toby lifted up his head, and after a moment's pause, said in a husky voice, Then, shipmate, my top lights have gone out, for it appears darker now with my eyes open than it did when they were shut. Nonsense, exclaimed I. You are not awake yet. Awake? roared Toby in a rage. Awake? You mean to insinuate I've been asleep, do you? It is an insult to a man to suppose he could sleep in such an infernal place as this. By the time I had apologized to my friend for having misconstrued his silence, it had become somewhat more light, and we crawled out of our lair. The rain had ceased, but everything around us was dripping with moisture. We stripped off our saturated garments, and wrung them as dry as we could. We contrived to make the blood circulate in our benumbed limbs by rubbing them vigorously with our hands, and after performing our ablutions in the stream, and putting on our still wet clothes, we began to think it advisable to break our long fast, it being now twenty-four hours since we had tasted food. Accordingly, our day's ration was brought out, and seating ourselves on a detached fragment of rock, we proceeded to discuss it. First, we divided it into two equal portions, and carefully rolling one of them up for our evening's repast, divided the remainder again as equally as possible, and then drew lots for the first choice. I could have placed the morsel that fell to my share upon the tip of my finger, but notwithstanding this, I took care that it should be full ten minutes before I had swallowed the last crumb. What a true saying it is that appetite furnishes the best sauce. There was a flavor and a relish to this small particle of food that under other circumstances it would have been impossible for the most delicate viands to have imparted. A copious draught of the pure water which flowed at our feet served to complete the meal, and after it we rose sensibly refreshed and prepared for whatever might befall us. We now carefully examined the chasm in which we had passed the night. We crossed the stream, and gaining the farther side of the pool I have mentioned, discovered proofs that the spot must have been visited by someone but a short time previous to our arrival. Further observation convinced us that it had been regularly frequented, and, as we afterwards conjectured from particular indications, for the purpose of obtaining a certain route from which the natives obtain a kind of ointment. These discoveries immediately determined us to abandon a place which had presented no inducement for us to remain, except the promise of security, and as we looked about us for the means of ascending again into the upper regions, we at last found a practicable part of the rock, and half an hour's toil carried us to the summit of the same cliff from which the preceding evening we had descended. I now proposed to Toby that instead of rambling about the island, exposing ourselves to discovery at every turn, we should select some place as our fixed abode for as long a period as our food should hold out, build ourselves a comfortable hut, and be as prudent and circumspect as possible. To all this my companion assented, and we at once set about carrying the plan into execution. With this view, after exploring without success a little glen near us, we crossed several of the ridges of which I have before spoken, and about noon found ourselves ascending a long and gradually rising slope, but still without having discovered any place adapted to our purpose. 
low and heavy clouds betokened an approaching storm, and we hurried on to gain a covert in a clump of thick bushes which appeared to terminate the long ascent. We threw ourselves under the lee of these bushes, and pulling up the long grass that grew around, covered ourselves completely with it, and awaited the shower. But it did not come as soon as we had expected, and before many minutes my companion was fast asleep, and I was rapidly falling into the same state of happy forgetfulness. Just at this juncture, however, down came the rain, with a violence that put all thoughts of slumber to flight. Although in some measure sheltered, our clothes soon became as wet as ever. This, after all the trouble we had taken to dry them, was provoking enough, but there was no help for it, and I recommend all adventurous youths who abandon vessels in romantic islands during the rainy season to provide themselves with umbrellas. After an hour or so, the shower passed away. My companion slept through it all, or at least appeared so to do, and now that it was over, I had not the heart to awaken him. As I lay on my back, completely shrouded with verdure, the leafy branches drooping over me, and my limbs buried in grass, I could not avoid comparing our situation with that of the interesting babes in the wood. Poor little sufferers! No wonder their constitutions broke down under the hardships to which they were exposed. During the hour or two spent under the shelter of these bushes, I began to feel symptoms which I at once attributed to the exposure of the preceding night. Cold shiverings and a burning fever succeeded one another at intervals, while one of my legs was swelled to such a degree and pained me so acutely that I half suspected I had been bitten by some venomous reptile, the congenial inhabitant of the chasm from which we had lately emerged. I may here remark, by the way, what I subsequently learned, that all the islands of Polynesia enjoy the reputation, in common with the Hibernian Isle, of being free from the presence of any vipers, though whether St. Patrick ever visited them is a question I shall not attempt to decide. As the feverish sensation increased upon me, I tossed about, still unwilling to disturb my slumbering companion, from whose side I removed two or three yards. I chanced to push aside a branch, and by so doing, suddenly disclosed to my view a scene which even now I can recall with all the vividness of the first impression. Had a glimpse of the gardens of paradise been revealed to me, I could scarcely have been more ravished with the sight. From the spot where I lay transfixed, with surprise and delight, I looked straight down into the bosom of a valley, which swept away in long wavy undulations to the blue waters in the distance. Midway towards the sea, and peering here and there amidst the foliage, might be seen the palmetto-thatched houses of its inhabitants glistening in the sun that had bleached them to a dazzling whiteness. The vale was more than three leagues in length, and about a mile across at its greatest width. On either side it appeared hemmed in by steep and green acclivities, which, uniting near the spot where I lay, formed an abrupt and semicircular termination of grassy cliffs and precipices hundreds of feet in height over which flowed numberless small cascades. 
but the crowning beauty of the prospect was its universal verdure, and in this indeed consists, I believe, the peculiar charm of every Polynesian landscape. Everywhere below me, from the base of the precipice upon whose very verge I had been unconsciously reposing, the surface of the vale presented a mass of foliage, spread with such rich profusion that it was impossible to determine of what description of trees it consisted. But perhaps there was nothing about the scenery I beheld more impressive than those silent cascades, whose slender threads of water, after leaping down the steep cliffs, were lost amidst the rich herbage of the valley. Over all the landscape there reigned the most hushed repose, which I almost feared to break, lest, like the enchanted gardens in the fairy tale, a single syllable might dissolve the spell. For a long time, forgetful alike of my own situation and the vicinity of my still slumbering companion, I remained gazing around me, hardly able to comprehend by what means I had thus suddenly been made a spectator of such a scene. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 8 Recovering from my astonishment at the beautiful scene before me, I quickly awakened Toby and informed him of the discovery I had made. Together, we now repaired to the border of the precipice, and my companion's admiration was equal to my own. A little reflection, however, abated our surprise at coming so unexpectedly upon this valley, since the large vales of Hapar and Taipee, lying upon this side of Nukahiva, and extending a considerable distance from the sea towards the interior, must necessarily terminate somewhere about this point. The question now was as to which of those two places we were looking down upon. Toby insisted that it was the abode of the Hapars, and I that it was tenanted by their enemies, the ferocious Taipees. To be sure, I was not entirely convinced by my own arguments, but Toby's proposition to descend at once into the valley and partake of the hospitality of its inmates seemed to me to be risking so much upon the strength of a mere supposition that I resolved to oppose it until we had more evidence to proceed upon. The point was one of vital importance, as the natives of Hapar were not only at peace with Nukahiva, but cultivated with its inhabitants the most friendly relations, and enjoyed beside a reputation for gentleness and humanity, which led us to expect from them, if not a cordial reception, at least a shelter during the short period we should remain in their territory. On the other hand, the very name of Taipee struck a panic into my heart, which I did not attempt to disguise. The thought of voluntarily throwing ourselves into the hands of these cruel savages seemed to me an act of mere madness, and almost equally so the idea of venturing into the valley, uncertain by which of these two tribes it was inhabited. That the veil at our feet was tenanted by one of them was a point that appeared to us past all doubt, since we knew that they resided in this quarter, although our information did not enlighten us further. 
My companion, however, incapable of resisting the tempting prospect which the place held out of an abundant supply of food and other means of enjoyment, still clung to his own inconsiderate view of the subject, nor could all my reasoning shake it. When I reminded him that it was impossible for either of us to know anything with certainty, and when I dwelt upon the horrible fate we should encounter were we rashly to descend into the valley, and discover too late the error we had committed, he replied by detailing all the evils of our present condition, and the sufferings we must undergo should we continue to remain where we then were. Anxious to draw him away from the subject, if possible, for I saw that it would be in vain to attempt changing his mind, I directed his attention to a long, bright, unwooded tract of land, which, sweeping down from the elevations in the interior, descended into the valley before us. I then suggested to him that beyond this ridge might lie a capacious and untenanted valley, abounding with all manner of delicious fruits, for I had heard that there were several such upon the island, and proposed that we should endeavor to reach it, and if we found our expectations realized we should at once take refuge in it, and remain there as long as we pleased. He acquiesced in the suggestion and we immediately, therefore, began surveying the country lying before us, with a view of determining upon the best route for us to pursue. But it presented little choice, the whole interval being broken into steep ridges, divided by dark ravines, extending in parallel lines at right angles to our direct course. All these we would be obliged to cross before we could hope to arrive at our destination. A WEARY JOURNEY but we decided to undertake it, though for my own part I felt little prepared to encounter its fatigues, shivering and burning by turns with the ague and fever, for I know not how else to describe the alternate sensations I experienced, and suffering not a little from the lameness which afflicted me. Added to this was the faintness consequent on our meager diet, a calamity in which Toby participated to the same extent as myself. These circumstances, however, only augmented my anxiety to reach a place which promised us plenty and repose, before I should be reduced to a state which would render me altogether unable to perform the journey. Accordingly, we now commenced it, by descending the almost perpendicular side of a steep and narrow gorge, bristling with a thick growth of reeds. Here there was but one mode for us to adopt. We seated ourselves upon the ground, and guided our descent by catching at the canes in our path. The velocity with which we thus slid down the side of the ravine soon brought us to a point where we could use our feet, and in a short time we arrived at the edge of the torrent, which rolled impetuously along the bed of the chasm. After taking a refreshing draught from the water of the stream, we addressed ourselves to a much more difficult undertaking than the last. Every foot of our late descent had to be regained in ascending the opposite side of the gorge, an operation rendered the less agreeable from the consideration that in these perpendicular episodes we did not progress an hundred yards on our journey. But, ungrateful as the task was, we set about it with exemplary patience, and after a snail-like progress of an hour or more, had scaled perhaps one half of the distance when the fever which had left me for a while returned with such violence and accompanied by so raging a thirst that it required all the entreaties of Toby to prevent me from losing all the fruits of my late exertion 
by precipitating myself madly down the cliffs we had just climbed in quest of the water which flowed so temptingly at their base. At the moment, all my hopes and fears appeared to be merged in this one desire, careless of the consequences that might result from its gratification. I am aware of no feeling, either of pleasure or of pain, that so completely deprives one of all power to resist its impulses as this same raging thirst. Toby earnestly conjured me to continue the ascent, assuring me that a little more exertion would bring us to the summit, and that then, in less than five minutes, we should find ourselves at the brink of the stream, which must necessarily flow on the other side of the ridge. "'Do not!' he exclaimed. "'Turn back, now that we have proceeded thus far, for I tell you that neither of us will have the courage to repeat the attempt if once more we find ourselves looking up to where we now are from the bottom of these rocks.' I was not yet so perfectly beside myself as to be heedless of these representations, and therefore toiled on, ineffectually endeavouring to appease the thirst which consumed me, by thinking that in a short time I should be able to gratify it to my heart's content. At last we gained the top of the second elevation, the loftiest of those I have described as extending in parallel lines between us and the valley we desired to reach. It commanded a view of the whole intervening distance, and, discouraged as I was by other circumstances, this prospect plunged me into the very depths of despair. Nothing but dark and fearful chasms, separated by sharp-crested and perpendicular ridges as far as the eye could reach. Could we have stepped from summit to summit of these steep but narrow elevations, we could easily have accomplished the distance but we must penetrate to the bottom of every yawning gulf, and scale in succession every one of the eminences before us. Even Toby, although not suffering as I did, was not proof against the disheartening influences of the sight. But we did not long stand to contemplate it, impatient as I was to reach the waters of the torrent which flowed beneath us. With an insensibility to danger which I cannot call to mind without shuddering, we threw ourselves down the depths of the ravine, startling its savage solitudes with the echoes produced by the falling fragments of rock we every moment dislodged from their places, careless of the insecurity of our footing, and reckless whether the slight roots and twigs we clutched at sustained us for the while, or treacherously yielded to our grasp. For my own part I scarcely knew whether I was helplessly falling from the heights above, or whether the fearful rapidity with which I descended was an act of my own volition. In a few minutes we reached the foot of the gorge, and kneeling upon a small ledge of dripping rocks, I bent over to the stream. What a delicious sensation was I now to experience! I paused for a second to concentrate all my capabilities of enjoyment, and then emerged my lips in the clear element before me. Had the apples of Sodom turned to ashes in my mouth, I could not have felt a more startling revulsion. A single drop of the cold fluid seemed to freeze every drop of blood in my body. The fever that had been burning in my veins gave place on the instant to death-like chills, which shook me one after another like so many shocks of electricity while the perspiration produced by my late violent exertions congealed in icy beads upon my forehead. My thirst was gone, 
and I fairly loathed the water. Starting to my feet, the sight of those dank rocks, oozing forth moisture at every crevice, and the dark stream shooting along its dismal channel, sent fresh chills through my shivering frame, and I felt as uncontrollable a desire to climb up towards the genial sunlight as I before had to descend the ravine. After two hours' perilous exertions, we stood upon the summit of another ridge, and it was with difficulty I could bring myself to believe that we had ever penetrated the black and yawning chasm which then gaped at our feet. Again we gazed upon the prospect which the height commanded, but it was just as depressing as the one which had before met our eyes. I now felt that in our present situation it was in vain for us to think of ever overcoming the obstacles in our way, and I gave up all thoughts of reaching the vale which lay beyond this series of impediments, while at the same time I could not devise any scheme to extricate ourselves from the difficulties in which we were involved. The remotest idea of returning to Nukahiva, unless assured of our vessel's departure, never once entered my mind, and indeed it was questionable whether we could have succeeded in reaching it, divided as we were from the bay by a distance we could not compute, and perplexed, too, in our remembrance of localities by our recent wanderings. Besides, it was unendurable the thought of retracing our steps and rendering all our painful exertions of no avail. There is scarcely anything, when a man is in difficulties, that he is more disposed to look upon with abhorrence than a right-about retrograde movement, a systematic going over of the already trodden ground, and especially if he has a love of adventure, such a course appears indescribably repulsive, so long as there remains the least hope to be derived from braving untried difficulties. It was this feeling that prompted us to descend the opposite side of the elevation we had just scaled, although with what definite object in view it would have been impossible for either of us to tell. Without exchanging a syllable upon the subject, Toby and myself simultaneously renounced the design which had lured us thus far, perceiving in each other's countenances that desponding expression which speaks more eloquently than words. Together, we stood towards the close of this weary day in the cavity of the third gorge we had entered, wholly incapacitated for any further exertion, until restored to some degree of strength by food and repose. We seated ourselves upon the least uncomfortable spot we could select, and Toby produced from the bosom of his frock the sacred package. In silence, we partook of the small morsel of refreshment that had been left from the morning's repast, and without once proposing to violate the sanctity of our engagement with respect to the remainder, we rose to our feet, and proceeded to construct some sort of shelter under which we might obtain the sleep we so greatly needed. Fortunately, the spot was better adapted to our purpose than the one in which we had passed the last wretched night. We cleared away the tall reeds from a small but almost level bit of ground, and twisted them into a low basket-like hut, which we covered with a profusion of long, thick leaves, gathered from a tree near at hand. We disposed them thickly all around, reserving only a slight opening that barely permitted us to crawl under the shelter we had thus obtained. These deep recesses, though protected from the winds that assail the summits of their lofty sides, 
are damp and chill to a degree that one would hardly anticipate in such a climate, and being unprovided with anything but our woolen frocks and thin duck trousers to resist the cold of the place, we were the more solicitous to render our habitation for the night as comfortable as we could. Accordingly, in addition to what we had already done, we plucked down all the leaves within our reach, and threw them in a heap over our little hut, into which we now crept, raking after us a reserved supply to form our couch. That night, nothing but the pain I suffered prevented me from sleeping most refreshingly. As it was, I caught two or three naps, while Toby slept away at my side as soundly as though he had been sandwiched between two holland sheets. Luckily it did not rain, and we were preserved from the misery which a heavy shower would have occasioned us. In the morning I was awakened by the sonorous voice of my companion ringing in my ears and bidding me rise. I crawled out from our heap of leaves and was astonished at the change which a good night's rest had wrought in his appearance. He was as blithe and joyous as a young bird, and was staying the keenness of his morning's appetite by chewing the soft bark of a delicate branch he held in his hand, and he recommended the like to me as an admirable antidote against the gnawings of hunger. For my own part, though feeling materially better than I had done the preceding evening, I could not look at the limb that had pained me so violently at intervals during the last twenty-four hours, without experiencing a sense of alarm that I strove in vain to shake off. Unwilling to disturb the flow of my comrade's spirits, I managed to stifle the complaints to which I might otherwise have given vent, and calling upon him good-humouredly to speed our banquet, I prepared myself for it by washing in the stream. This operation concluded we swallowed, or rather absorbed, by a peculiar kind of slow sucking process, our respective morsels of nourishment, and then entered into a discussion as to the steps it was necessary for us to pursue. "'What's to be done now?' inquired I, rather dolefully. "'Descend into that same valley we described yesterday.' rejoined Toby, with a rapidity and loudness of utterance that almost led me to suspect he had been slyly devouring the broad side of an ox in some of the adjoining thickets. "'What else?' he continued. "'Remains for us to do but that, to be sure. Why, we shall both starve to a certainty if we remain here, and as to your fears of those Taipees, depend upon it, it is all nonsense. It is impossible that the inhabitants of such a lovely place as we saw can be anything else but good fellows.' and if you choose rather to perish with hunger in one of these soppy caverns, I for one prefer to chance a bold descent into the valley, and risk the consequences. And who is to pilot us thither? I asked. Even if we should decide upon the measure you propose, are we to go again up and down those precipices that we crossed yesterday, until we reach the place we started from, and then take a flying leap from the cliffs to the valley? "'Faith, I didn't think of that,' said Toby. "'Sure enough, both sides of the valley appeared to be hemmed in by precipices, didn't they?' "'Yes,' answered I, "'as steep as the sides of a line of battleship and about a hundred times as high.' My companion sank his head upon his breast and remained for a while in deep thought. Suddenly he sprang to his feet, while his eyes lighted up with that gleam of intelligence that marks the presence of some bright idea. "'Yes, yes!' he exclaimed. 
the streams all run in the same direction, and must necessarily flow into the valley before they reach the sea. All we have to do is just to follow the stream, and sooner or later it will lead us into the vale. You are right, Toby, I exclaimed. You are right. It must conduct us thither, and quickly too, for see what a steep inclination the water descends. It does indeed, burst forth my companion, overjoyed at my verification of his theory. It does indeed. Why, it is as plain as a pikestaff. Let us proceed at once. Come, throw away all those stupid ideas about the Taipees, and hurrah for the lovely valley of the Hapars. You will have it to be Hapar, I see, my dear fellow. Pray heaven you may not find yourself deceived, observed I with a shake of my head. Amen to all that and much more, shouted Toby, rushing forward. But Hapar it is, for nothing else than Hapar can it be. So glorious a valley. Such forests of breadfruit trees, such groves of coconut, such wildernesses of guava bushes. Ah, shipmate, don't linger behind. In the name of all delightful fruits, I am dying to be at them. Come on, come on, shove ahead. There's a lively lad. Never mind the rocks. Kick them out of the way as I do. And tomorrow, old fellow, take my word for it, we shall be in clover. Come on. And so saying, he dashed along the ravine like a madman, forgetting my inability to keep up with him. In a few minutes, however, the exuberance of his spirits abated, and pausing for a while, he permitted me to overtake him. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 9 the fearless confidence of Toby was contagious, and I began to adopt the Hepar side of the question. I could not, however, overcome a certain feeling of trepidation as we made our way along these gloomy solitudes. Our progress, at first comparatively easy, became more and more difficult. The bed of the watercourse was covered with fragments of broken rocks, which had fallen from above, offering so many obstructions to the course of the rapid stream which vexed and fretted about them, forming at intervals small waterfalls, pouring over into deep basins, or splashing wildly upon heaps of stones. From the narrowness of the gorge, and the steepness of its sides, there was no mode of advancing but by wading through the water, stumbling every moment over the impediments which lay hidden under its surface, or tripping against the huge roots of trees, but the most annoying hindrance we encountered was from a multitude of crooked boughs, which, shooting out almost horizontally from the sides of the chasm, twisted themselves together in fantastic masses almost to the surface of the stream, affording us no passage except under the low arches which they formed. Under these we were obliged to crawl on our hands and feet, sliding along the oozy surface of the rocks, or slipping into the deep pools and with scarce light enough to guide us. Occasionally we would strike our heads against some projecting limb of a tree, and while imprudently engaged in rubbing the injured part, would fall sprawling amongst flinty fragments, cutting and bruising ourselves, whilst the unpitying waters flowed over our prostrate bodies. Belzoni, worming himself through the subterranean passages of the Egyptian catacombs, could not have met with greater impediments than those we here encountered. But we struggled against them manfully, well knowing our only hope 
lay in advancing. Towards sunset we halted at a spot where we made preparations for passing the night. Here we constructed a hut, in much the same way as before, and crawling into it, endeavored to forget our sufferings. My companion, I believe, slept pretty soundly, but at daybreak, when we rolled out of our dwelling, I felt nearly disqualified for any further efforts. Toby prescribed as a remedy for my illness the contents of one of our little silk packages, to be taken at once in a single dose. To this species of medical treatment, however, I would by no means accede, much as he insisted upon it, and so we partook of our usual morsel, and silently resumed our journey. It was now the fourth day since we left Nukahiva, and the gnawings of hunger became painfully acute. We were fain to pacify them by chewing the tender bark of roots and twigs, which, if they did not afford us nourishment, were at least sweet and pleasant to the taste. Our progress along the steep watercourse was necessarily slow, and by noon we had not advanced more than a mile. It was somewhat near this part of the day that the noise of falling waters, which we had faintly caught in the early morning, became more distinct, and it was not long before we were arrested by a rocky precipice of nearly a hundred feet in depth that extended all across the channel, and over which the wild stream poured in an unbroken leap. On either hand, the walls of the ravine presented their overhanging sides both above and below the fall affording no means whatever of avoiding the cataract by taking a circuit round it. "'What's to be done now, Toby?' said I. "'Why?' rejoined he. "'As we cannot retreat, I suppose we must keep shoving along.' "'Very true, my dear Toby. But how do you propose accomplishing that desirable object?' "'By jumping from the top of the fall. If there be no other way,' unhesitatingly replied my companion." It will be much the quickest way of descent, but as you are not quite as active as I am, we will try some other way. And, so saying, he crept cautiously along and peered over into the abyss, while I remained wondering by what possible means we could overcome this apparently insuperable obstruction. As soon as my companion had completed his survey, I eagerly inquired the results. The result of my observations you wish to know, do you? began Toby, deliberately, with one of his odd looks. "'Well, my lad, the result of my observations is very quickly imparted. It is at present uncertain which of our two necks will have the honor to be broken first, but about a hundred to one would be a fair bet in favor of the man who takes the first jump.' "'Then it is an impossible thing, is it?' inquired I, gloomily. "'No, shipmate. On the contrary, it is the easiest thing in life.' The only awkward point is the sort of usage which our unhappy limbs may receive when we arrive at the bottom, and what sort of travelling trim we shall be in afterwards. But follow me now, and I will show you the only chance we have. With this he conducted me to the verge of the cataract, and pointed along the side of the ravine to a number of curious-looking roots, some three or four inches in thickness, and several feet long, which after twisting among the fissures of the rock, shot perpendicularly from it, and ran tapering to a point in the air, hanging over the gulf like so many dark icicles. They covered nearly the entire surface of one side of the gorge, the lowest of them reaching even to the water. Many were moss-grown and decayed, with their extremities snapped short off, and those in the immediate vicinity of the fall were slippery with moisture. 
Toby's scheme, and it was a desperate one, was to entrust ourselves to these treacherous-looking roots, and by slipping down from one to another, to gain the bottom. "'Are you ready to venture it?' asked Toby, looking at me earnestly, but without saying a word as to the practicability of the plan. "'I am,' was my reply, for I saw it was our only resource if we wished to advance, and as for retreating, all thoughts of that sort had been long abandoned. After I had signified my assent, Toby, without uttering a single word, crawled along the dripping ledge until he gained a point from whence he could just reach one of the largest of the pendant roots. He shook it. It quivered in his grasp, and when he let it go, it twanged in the air like a strong wire sharply struck. Satisfied by his scrutiny, my light-limbed companion swung himself nimbly upon it, and twisting his legs round it in sailor fashion, slipped down eight or ten feet, where his weight gave it a motion not unlike that of a pendulum. He could not venture to descend any further, so, holding on with one hand, he with the other shook one by one all the slender roots around him, and at last, finding one which he thought trustworthy, shifted himself to it, and continued his downward progress. So far so well, but I could not avoid comparing my heavier frame and disabled condition with his light figure and remarkable activity. But there was no help for it, and in less than a minute's time I was swinging directly over his head. As soon as his upturned eyes caught a glimpse of me, he exclaimed in his usual dry tone, for the danger did not seem to daunt him in the least, "'Mate, do me the kindness not to fall until I get out of your way,' and then swinging himself more on one side, he continued his descent. In the meantime, I cautiously transferred myself from the limb down which I had been slipping to a couple of others that were near it, deeming two strings to my bow better than one, and taking care to test their strength before I trusted my weight to them. On arriving towards the end of the second stage in this vertical journey, and shaking the long roots which were round me, to my consternation they snapped off one after another like so many pipe-stems, and fell in fragments against the side of the gulf, splashing at last into the waters beneath. As one after another the treacherous roots yielded to my grasp and fell into the torrent, my heart sunk within me. The branches on which I was suspended over the yawning chasm swang to and fro in the air, and I expected them every moment to snap in twain. Appalled at the dreadful fate that menaced me, I clutched frantically at the only large root which remained near me, but in vain I could not reach it, though my fingers were within a few inches of it. Again and again I tried to reach it, until at length, maddened with the thought of my situation, I swayed myself violently by striking my foot against the side of the rock, and at the instant that I approached the large root caught desperately at it, and transferred myself to it. It vibrated violently under the sudden weight, but fortunately did not give way. My brain grew dizzy with the idea of the frightful risk I had just run, and I involuntarily closed my eyes to shut out the view of the depth beneath me. For the instant I was safe, and I uttered a devout ejaculation of thanksgiving for my escape. "'Pretty well done,' shouted Toby underneath me. "'You are nimbler than I thought you to be.' hopping about up there from root to root like any young squirrel, as soon as you have diverted yourself sufficiently, I would advise you to proceed. 
Aye, aye, Toby, all in good time. Two or three more such famous routes as this, and I shall be with you. The residue of my downward progress was comparatively easy. The roots were in greater abundance, and in one or two places jutting out points of rock assisted me greatly. In a few moments I was standing by the side of my companion. Substituting a stout stick for the one I had thrown aside at the top of the precipice, we now continued our course along the bed of the ravine. Soon we were saluted by a sound in advance that grew by degrees louder and louder, as the noise of the cataract we were leaving behind gradually died on our ears. Another precipice for us, Toby. Very good. We can descend them, you know. Come on. Nothing indeed appeared to depress or intimidate this intrepid fellow. Typees or Niagara's, he was as ready to engage one as the other, and I could not avoid a thousand times congratulating myself upon having such a companion in an enterprise like the present. After an hour's painful progress, we reached the verge of another fall, still loftier than the preceding, and flanked both above and below with the same steep masses of rock, presenting, however, here and there narrow irregular ledges supporting a shallow soil on which grew a variety of bushes and trees, whose bright verdure contrasted beautifully with the foamy waters that flowed between them. Toby, who invariably acted as pioneer, now proceeded to reconnoiter. On his return he reported that the shelves of rock on our right would enable us to gain with little risk the bottom of the cataract. Accordingly, leaving the bed of the stream at the very point where it thundered down, we began crawling along one of these sloping ledges until it carried us to within a few feet of another that inclined downward at a still sharper angle, and upon which, by assisting each other, we managed to alight in safety. We warily crept along this, steadying ourselves by the naked roots of the shrubs that clung to every fissure. As we proceeded, the narrow path became still more contracted, rendering it difficult for us to maintain our footing, until suddenly, as we reached an angle of the wall of rock where we had expected it to widen, we perceived to our consternation that a yard or two farther on it abruptly terminated at a place we could not possibly hope to pass. Toby, as usual, led the van, and in silence I waited to learn from him how he proposed to extricate us from this new difficulty. "'Well, my boy,' I exclaimed after the expiration of several minutes, during which time my companion had not uttered a word, "'what's to be done now?' He replied in a tranquil tone that probably the best thing we could do in our present strait was to get out of it as soon as possible. "'Yes, my dear Toby,' But tell me how we are to get out of it. Something in this sort of style, he replied, and at the same moment, to my horror, he slipped sideways off the rock, and as I then thought, by good fortune merely, alighted among the spreading branches of a species of palm tree, that shooting its hardy roots along a ledge below, curved its trunk upwards into the air and presented a thick mass of foliage about twenty feet below the spot where we had thus suddenly been brought to a standstill. I involuntarily held my breath, expecting to see the form of my companion, after being sustained for a moment by the branches of the tree, sink through their frail support, and fall headlong to the bottom. To my surprise and joy, however, he recovered himself, and disentangling his limbs from the fractured branches, he peered out from his leafy bed, and shouted lustily, 
Come on, my hearty, there is no other alternative. And with this he ducked beneath the foliage, and slipping down the trunk, stood in a moment at least fifty feet beneath me, upon the broad shelf of rock from which sprung the tree he had descended. What would I not have given at that moment to have been by his side? The feat he had just accomplished seemed little less than miraculous, and I could hardly credit the evidence of my senses when I saw the wide distance that a single daring act had so suddenly placed between us. Toby's animating, Come on! again sounded in my ears, and dreading to lose all confidence in myself if I remained meditating upon the step, I once more gazed down to assure myself of the relative bearing of the tree and my own position, and then, closing my eyes and uttering one comprehensive ejaculation of prayer, I inclined myself over towards the abyss, and after one breathless instant fell with a crash into the tree, the branches snapping and crackling with my weight as I sunk lower and lower among them until I was stopped by coming in contact with a sturdy limb. In a few moments I was standing at the foot of the tree, manipulating myself all over with a view of ascertaining the extent of the injuries I had received. To my surprise, the only effects of my feet were a few slight contusions too trifling to care about. The rest of our descent was easily accomplished, and in half an hour after regaining the ravine we had partaken of our evening morsel, built our hut as usual, and crawled under its shelter. The next morning, in spite of our debility and the agony of hunger under which we were now suffering, though neither of us confessed to the fact, we struggled along our dismal and still difficult and dangerous path, cheered by the hope of soon catching a glimpse of the valley before us, and towards evening the voice of a cataract which had for some time sounded like a low, deep bass to the music of the smaller waterfalls, broke upon our ears in still louder tones, and assured us that we were approaching its vicinity. That evening we stood on the brink of a precipice, over which the dark stream bounded in one final leap of full three hundred feet. The sheer descent terminated in the region we so long had sought. On either side of the fall, two lofty and perpendicular bluffs buttressed the sides of the enormous cliff, and projected into the sea of verdure with which the valley waved, and a range of similar projecting eminences stood disposed in a half-circle about the head of the vale. A thick canopy of leaves hung over the very verge of the fall, leaving an arched aperture for the passage of the waters, which imparted a strange picturesqueness to the scene. The valley was now before us, but instead of being conducted into its smiling bosom by the gradual descent of the deep watercourse we had thus far pursued, all our labors now appeared to have been rendered futile by its abrupt termination. But, bitterly disappointed, we did not entirely despair. As it was now near sunset, we determined to pass the night where we were, and on the morrow, refreshed by sleep, and by eating at one meal all our stock of food, to accomplish a descent into the valley, or perish in the attempt. We laid ourselves down that night on a spot, the recollection of which still makes me shudder. A small table of rock which projected over the precipice on one side of the stream, and was drenched by the spray of the fall, 
sustained a huge trunk of a tree which must have been deposited there by some heavy freshet. It lay obliquely, with one end resting on the rock, and the other supported by the side of the ravine. Against it we placed in a sloping direction a number of the half-decayed boughs that were strewn about, and, covering the hole with twigs and leaves, awaited the morning's light beneath such shelter as it afforded. During the whole of this night, the continual roaring of the cataract, the dismal moaning of the gale through the trees, the pattering of the rain, and the profound darkness, affected my spirits to a degree which nothing had ever before produced. Wet, half-famished, and chilled to the heart with the dampness of the place, and nearly wild with the pain I endured, I fairly cowered down to the earth under this multiplication of hardships, and abandoned myself to frightful anticipations of evil, and my companion, whose spirit at last was a good deal broken, scarcely uttered a word during the whole night. At length the day dawned upon us, and rising from our miserable pallet, we stretched our stiffened joints, and after eating all that remained of our bread, prepared for the last stage of our journey. I will not recount every hairbreadth escape, and every fearful difficulty that occurred before we succeeded in reaching the bosom of the valley. As I have already described similar scenes, it will be sufficient to say that at length, after great toil and great dangers, we both stood, with no limbs broken, at the head of that magnificent vale, which five days before had so suddenly burst upon my sight, and almost beneath the shadows of those very cliffs from whose summits we had gazed upon the prospect. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 10 how to obtain the fruit which we felt convinced must grow near at hand was our first thought. Typee or Hapar, a frightful death at the hands of the fiercest of cannibals, or a kindly reception from a gentler race of savages. Which? But it was too late now to discuss a question which would so soon be answered. The part of the valley in which we found ourselves appeared to be altogether uninhabited, an almost impenetrable thicket extended from side to side, without presenting a single plant affording the nourishment we had confidently calculated upon. And with this object, we followed the course of the stream, casting quick glances as we proceeded into the thick jungles on either hand. My companion, to whose solicitations I had yielded in descending into the valley, now that the step was taken, began to manifest a degree of caution I had little expected from him. He proposed that in the event of our finding an adequate supply of fruit, we should remain in this unfrequented portion of the valley, where we should run little chance of being surprised by its occupants, whoever they might be, until sufficiently recruited to resume our journey, when laying in a store of food equal to our wants we might easily regain the Bay of Nukahiva after the lapse of a sufficient interval to ensure the departure of our vessel. I objected strongly to this proposition, plausible as it was, as the difficulties of the route would be almost insurmountable, 
unacquainted as we were with the general bearings of the country, and I reminded my companion of the hardships which we had already encountered in our uncertain wanderings. In a word, I said that since we had deemed it advisable to enter the valley, we ought manfully to face the consequences, whatever they might be, the more especially as I was convinced there was no alternative left us but to fall in with the natives at once, and boldly risk the reception they might give us and that as to myself I felt the necessity of rest and shelter, and that until I had obtained them I should be wholly unable to encounter such sufferings as we had lately passed through. To the justice of these observations, Toby somewhat reluctantly assented. We were surprised that after moving as far as we had along the valley, we should still meet with the same impervious thickets, and thinking that although the borders of the stream might be lined for some distance with them, yet beyond there might be more open ground, I requested Toby to keep a bright lookout upon one side, while I did the same on the other, in order to discover some opening in the bushes, and especially to watch for the slightest appearance of a path, or anything else that might indicate the vicinity of the islanders. What furtive and anxious glances we cast into those dim-looking shades! With what apprehensions we proceeded! ignorant at what moment we might be greeted by the javelin of some ambushed savage. At last my companion paused, and directed my attention to a narrow opening in the foliage. We struck into it, and it soon brought us by an indistinctly traced path to a comparatively clear space, at the further end of which we descried a number of the trees, the native name of which is Enui, and which bear a most delicious fruit. What a race! I, hobbling over the ground like some decrepit wretch, and Toby leaping forward like a greyhound. He quickly cleared one of the trees on which there were two or three of the fruit, but to our chagrin they proved to be much decayed, the rinds partly opened by the birds, and their hearts half devoured. However, we quickly dispatched them, and no ambrosia could have been more delicious. We looked about us uncertain whither to direct our steps, since the path we had so far followed appeared to be lost in the open space around us. At last we resolved to enter a grove near at hand, and had advanced a few rods when, just upon its skirts, I picked up a slender breadfruit shoot, perfectly green, and with the tender bark freshly stripped from it. It was still slippery with moisture, and appeared as if it had been but that moment thrown aside. I said nothing, but merely held it up to Toby, who started at this undeniable evidence of the vicinity of the savages. The plot was now thickening. A short distance further lay a little faggot of the same shoots bound together with a strip of bark. Could it have been thrown down by some solitary native, who, alarmed at seeing us, had hurried forward to carry the tidings of our approach to his countrymen, Taipi or Hapar? but it was too late to recede, so we moved on slowly, my companion in advance casting eager glances under the trees on either side, until all at once I saw him recoil as if stung by an adder. Sinking on his knee, he waved me off with one hand, while with the other he held aside some intervening leaves and gazed intently at some object. Disregarding his injunction, I quickly approached him and caught a glimpse of two figures partly hidden by the dense foliage. They were standing close together, and were perfectly motionless. 
they must have previously perceived us and withdrawn into the depths of the wood to elude our observation. My mind was at once made up. Dropping my staff, and tearing open the package of things we had brought from the ship, I unrolled the cotton cloth, and holding it in one hand, plucked with the other a twig from the bushes beside me, and telling Toby to follow my example, I broke through the covert and advanced, waving the branch in token of peace towards the shrinking forms before me. They were a boy and girl, slender and graceful, and completely naked, with the exception of a slight girdle of bark, from which depended at opposite points two of the russet leaves of the breadfruit tree. An arm of the boy, half screened from sight by her wild tresses, was thrown about the neck of the girl, while with the other he held one of her hands in his, and thus they stood together, their heads inclined forward, catching the faint noise we made in our progress, and with one foot in advance, as if half inclined to fly from our presence. As we drew near, their alarm evidently increased. Apprehensive that they might fly from us altogether, I stopped short and motioned them to advance and receive the gift I extended towards them, but they would not. I then uttered a few words of their language with which I was acquainted, scarcely expecting that they would understand me, but to show that we had not dropped from the clouds upon them. This appeared to give them a little confidence, so I approached nearer, presenting the cloth with one hand and holding the bow with the other, while they slowly retreated. At last they suffered us to approach so near to them that we were enabled to throw the cotton cloth across their shoulders, giving them to understand that it was theirs, and by a variety of gestures endeavoring to make them understand that we entertained the highest possible regard for them. The frightened pair now stood still, whilst we endeavored to make them comprehend the nature of our wants. In doing this, Toby went through with a complete series of pantomimic illustrations, opening his mouth from ear to ear, and thrusting his fingers down his throat, gnashing his teeth and rolling his eyes about, till I verily believe the poor creatures took us for a couple of white cannibals who were about to make a meal of them. When, however, they understood us, they showed no inclination to relieve our wants. At this juncture, it began to rain violently, and we motioned them to lead us to some place of shelter. With this request, they appeared willing to comply, but nothing could evince more strongly the apprehension with which they regarded us than the way in which, whilst walking before us, they kept their eyes constantly turned back to watch every movement we made, and even our very looks. Typee or Hapar, Toby? asked I as we walked after them. Of course, Hapar, he replied with a show of confidence, which was intended to disguise his doubts. We shall soon know, I exclaimed, and at the same moment I stepped forward towards our guides, and pronouncing the two names interrogatively and pointing to the lowest part of the valley, endeavored to come to the point at once. They repeated the words after me again and again, but without giving any peculiar emphasis to either, so that I was completely at a loss to understand them. For a couple of wilier young things than we afterwards found them to have been on this particular occasion, never probably fell in any traveller's way. More and more curious to ascertain our fate, I now threw together in the form of a question the words Hapar and Mortarki, the latter being equivalent to the word good. 
The two natives interchanged glances of peculiar meaning with one another at this, and manifested no little surprise. But on the repetition of the question, after some consultation together, to the great joy of Toby, they answered in the affirmative. Toby was now in ecstasies, especially as the young savages continued to reiterate their answer with great energy, as though desirous of impressing us with the idea that being among the Hapars, we ought to consider ourselves perfectly secure. Although I had some lingering doubts, I feigned great delight with Toby at this announcement, while my companion broke out into a pantomimic abhorrence of Typee, and immeasurable love for the particular valley in which we were. Our guides, all the while gazing uneasily at one another as if at a loss to account for our conduct. They hurried on, and we followed them, until suddenly they set up a strange halloo, which was answered from beyond the grove through which we were passing, and the next moment we entered upon some open ground, at the extremity of which we descried a long, low hut, and in front of it were several young girls. As soon as they perceived us, they fled with wild screams into the adjoining thickets, like so many startled fawns. A few moments after, the whole valley resounded with savage outcries, and the natives came running towards us from every direction. Had an army of invaders made an eruption into their territory, they could not have evinced greater excitement. We were soon completely encircled by a dense throng, and in their eager desire to behold us, they almost arrested our progress, an equal number surrounding our youthful guides, who with amazing volubility appeared to be detailing the circumstances which had attended their meeting with us. Every item of intelligence appeared to redouble the astonishment of the islanders, and they gazed at us with inquiring looks. At last we reached a large and handsome building of bamboos, and were by signs told to enter it, the natives opening a lane for us through which to pass. On entering without ceremony, we threw our exhausted frames upon the mats that covered the floor. In a moment, the slight tenement was completely full of people, whilst those who were unable to obtain admittance gazed at us through its open canework. It was now evening, and by the dim light we could just discern the savage countenances around us gleaming with wild curiosity and wonder, the naked forms and tattooed limbs of brawny warriors, with here and there the slighter figures of young girls, all engaged in a perfect storm of conversation, of which we were, of course, the one only theme, whilst our recent guides were fully occupied in answering the innumerable questions which every one put to them. Nothing can exceed the fierce gesticulation of these people when animated in conversation, and on this occasion they gave loose to all their natural vivacity, shouting and dancing about in a manner that well-nigh intimidated us. Close to where we lay, squatting upon their haunches, were some eight or ten noble-looking chiefs, for such they subsequently proved to be, who, more reserved than the rest, regarded us with a fixed and stern attention, which not a little discomposed our equanimity. One of them in particular, who appeared to be the highest in rank, placed himself directly facing me, looking at me with a rigidity of aspect under which I absolutely quailed. He never once opened his lips, but maintained his severe expression of countenance, without turning his face aside for a single moment. 
never before had I been subjected to so strange and steady a glance. It revealed nothing of the mind of the savage, but it appeared to be reading my own. After undergoing this scrutiny till I grew absolutely nervous, with a view of diverting it if possible, and conciliating the good opinion of the warrior, I took some tobacco from the bosom of my frock and offered it to him. He quietly rejected the proffered gift, and without speaking, motioned me to return it to its place. In my previous intercourse with the natives of Nukahiva and Tior, I had found that the present of a small piece of tobacco would have rendered any of them devoted to my service. Was this act of the chief a token of his enmity? Taipee or Hapar, I asked within myself. I started, for at the same moment this identical question was asked by the strange being before me. I turned to Toby. The flickering light of a native taper showed me his countenance pale with trepidation at this fatal question. I paused for a second, and I know not by what impulse it was that I answered, Taipee. The piece of dusky statuary nodded in approval, and then murmured, Mortarki? Mortarki, said I, without further hesitation. Taipee Mortarki. What a transition! The dark figures around us leaped to their feet, clapped their hands in transport, and shouted again and again the talismanic syllables, the utterance of which appeared to have settled everything. When this commotion had a little subsided, the principal chief squatted once more before me, and throwing himself into a sudden rage, poured forth a string of philippics, which I was at no loss to understand, from the frequent recurrence of the word hapar, as being directed against the natives of the adjoining valley. In all these denunciations my companion and I acquiesced, while we extolled the character of the warlike Taipees. To be sure, our panegyrics were somewhat laconic, consisting in the repetition of that name, united with the potent adjective mortarki. But this was sufficient, and served to conciliate the goodwill of the natives, with whom our congeniality of sentiment on this point did more towards inspiring a friendly feeling than anything else that could have happened. At last, the wrath of the chief evaporated, and in a few moments he was as placid as ever. Laying his hand upon his breast, he now gave me to understand that his name was Mehavi, and that in return he wished me to communicate my appellation. I hesitated for an instant, thinking that it might be difficult for him to pronounce my real name, and then, with the most praiseworthy intentions, intimated that I was known as Tom. But I could not have made a worse selection. The chief could not master it. Tomo, Tama, Tommy, everything but plain Tom. As he persisted in garnishing the word with an additional syllable, I compromised the matter with him at the word Tomo, and by that name I went during the entire period of my stay in the valley. The same proceeding was gone through with Toby, whose mellifluous appellation was more easily caught. An exchange of names is equivalent to a ratification of goodwill and amity among these simple people, and as we were aware of this fact, we were delighted that it had taken place on the present occasion. Reclining upon our mats, we now held a kind of levy, giving audience to successive troops of the natives, 
who introduced themselves to us by pronouncing their respective names, and retired in high good humor on receiving ours in return. During the ceremony, the greatest merriment prevailed, nearly every announcement on the part of the islanders being followed by a fresh sally of gaiety, which induced me to believe that some of them at least were innocently diverting the company at our expense, by bestowing upon themselves a string of absurd titles, of the humor of which we were of course entirely ignorant. All this occupied about an hour, when the throng, having a little diminished, I turned to Mahavi and gave him to understand that we were in need of food and sleep. Immediately the attentive chief addressed a few words to one of the crowd, who disappeared, and returned in a few moments with a calabash of poey poey, and two or three young coconuts stripped of their husks, and with their shells partly broken. We both of us forthwith placed one of these natural goblets to our lips, and drained it in a moment of the refreshing draught it contained. The poey-poey was then placed before us, and even famished as I was, I paused to consider in what manner to convey it to my mouth. This staple article of food among the Marquis Islanders is manufactured from the produce of the breadfruit tree. It somewhat resembles in its plastic nature our bookbinder's paste, is of a yellow color, and somewhat tart to the taste. Such was the dish, the merits of which I was now eager to discuss. I eyed it wistfully for a moment, and then unable any longer to stand on ceremony, plunged my hand into the yielding mass, and to the boisterous mirth of the natives drew it forth laden with the poey-poey, which adhered in lengthening strings to every finger. So stubborn was its consistency, that in conveying my heavily freighted hand to my mouth, the connecting links almost raised the calabash from the mats on which it had been placed. This display of awkwardness, in which, by the by, Toby kept me company, convulsed the bystanders with uncontrollable laughter. As soon as their merriment had somewhat subsided, Mahavi, motioning us to be attentive, dipped the forefinger of his right hand in the dish, and giving it a rapid and scientific twirl, drew it out coated smoothly with the preparation. With a second peculiar flourish, he prevented the poey-poey from dropping to the ground as he raised it to his mouth, into which the finger was inserted and drawn forth perfectly free from any adhesive matter. This performance was evidently intended for our instruction, so I again essayed the feat on the principles inculcated, but with very ill success. A starving man, however, little heeds conventional proprieties, especially on a South Sea island, and accordingly Toby and I partook of the dish after our own clumsy fashion, but plastering our faces all over with the glutinous compound, and daubing our hands nearly to the wrist. This kind of food is by no means disagreeable to the palate of a European, though at first the mode of eating it may be. For my own part, after the lapse of a few days I became accustomed to its singular flavor, and grew remarkably fond of it. So much for the first course. Several other dishes followed it, some of which were positively delicious. We concluded our banquet by tossing off the contents of two more young coconuts, after which we regaled ourselves with the soothing fumes of tobacco, inhaled from a quaintly carved pipe which passed round the circle. 
During the repast, the natives eyed us with intense curiosity, observing our minutest motions, and appearing to discover abundant matter for comment in the most trifling occurrence. Their surprise mounted the highest when we began to remove our uncomfortable garments, which were saturated with rain. They scanned the whiteness of our limbs, and seemed utterly unable to account for the contrast they presented to the swarthy hue of our faces, embrowned from a six-month's exposure to the scorching sun of the line. They felt our skin, much in the same way that a silk mercer would handle a remarkably fine piece of satin, and some of them went so far in their investigation as to apply the olfactory organ. Their singular behavior almost led me to imagine that they never before had beheld a white man, but a few moments' reflection convinced me that this could not have been the case, and a more satisfactory reason for their conduct has since suggested itself to my mind. Deterred by the frightful stories related of its inhabitants, ships never entered this bay, while their hostile relations with the tribes in the adjoining valleys prevent the Taipees from visiting that section of the island where vessels occasionally lie. At long intervals, however, some intrepid captain will touch on the skirts of the bay, with two or three armed boats' crews, and accompanied by an interpreter. The natives who live near the sea descry the strangers long before they reach their waters, and aware of the purpose for which they come, proclaim loudly the news of their approach. By a species of vocal telegraph, the intelligence reaches the inmost recesses of the vale in an inconceivably short space of time, drawing nearly its whole population down to the beach, laden with every variety of fruit. The interpreter, who is invariably a tabooed kanaka, leaps ashore with the goods intended for barter, while the boats, with their oars shipped and every man on his thwart, lie just outside the surf, heading off from the shore, in readiness at the first untoward event to escape to the open sea. Footnote. The word kanaka is at the present day universally used in the South Seas by Europeans to designate the islanders. In the various dialects of the principal groups, it is simply a sexual designation applied to the males, but it is now used by the natives in their intercourse with foreigners in the same sense in which the latter employ it. A tabooed kanaka is an islander whose person has been made to a certain extent sacred by the operation of a singular custom hereafter to be explained. End of footnote. As soon as the traffic is concluded, one of the boats pulls in under cover of the muskets of the others, the fruit is quickly thrown into her, and the transient visitors precipitately retire from what they justly consider so dangerous a vicinity. The intercourse occurring with Europeans being so restricted, no wonder that the inhabitants of the valley manifested so much curiosity with regard to us, appearing, as we did among them, under such singular circumstances. I have no doubt that we were the first white men who ever penetrated thus far back into their territories, or at least the first who had ever descended from the head of the vale. What had brought us thither must have appeared a complete mystery to them, and from our ignorance of the language it was impossible for us to enlighten them. In answer to inquiries which the eloquence of their gestures enabled us to comprehend, all that we could reply was that we had come from Nukahiva a place, be it remembered, with which they were at open war. This intelligence appeared to affect them with the most lively emotions. Nuka Heva Motarki? they asked. 
Of course, we replied most energetically in the negative. They then plied us with a thousand questions, of which we could understand nothing more than that they had reference to the recent movements of the French, against whom they seemed to cherish the most fierce hatred. So eager were they to obtain information on this point, that they still continued to propound their queries long after we had shown that we were utterly unable to answer them. Occasionally we caught some indistinct idea of their meaning, when we would endeavor by every method in our power to communicate the desired intelligence. At such times their gratification was boundless, and they would redouble their efforts to make us comprehend them more perfectly. But all in vain, and in the end they looked at us despairingly, as if we were the receptacles of invaluable information, but how to come at it they knew not. After a while the group around us gradually dispersed, and we were left about midnight, as we conjectured, with those who appeared to be permanent residents of the house. These individuals now provided us with fresh mats to lie upon, covered us with several folds of tapa, and then extinguishing the tapers that had been burning, threw themselves down beside us, and after a little desultory conversation, were soon sound asleep. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.